Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast. I am joined today by the one and only Joshua Huber, who is filling in for a sick Matthew Wiedemann and AJ Molnix. Josh, thanks for joining me on week 52 of our yearly Bible reading plan. It's a pleasure to be here, Aaron. I know that podcasting is your favorite thing to do in the world. Absolutely. Um, what do you like most about podcasting? Uh, my favorite things about podcasting is, you know, just the anticipation of speaking into a microphone, pretending to know things about the text that I don't know and figuring out how I'm going to make it sound like I do know something when I don't. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that whole excitement, anticipation, that's, that's where it's at. Yeah, you know how in, like, college choir, if you didn't know the part, you would just mouth the words watermelon while everyone else you. was singing? Yeah. What's the equivalent of that for podcasting when you don't know what you're talking about but have to make it seem like you do? <laughs> Depends what you're talking about. Because but... no one can see you, so you can't just mouth something. You actually have to say something. Yeah, so you're just looking at the text. You read the verse, and, yeah, you're like, yeah, that verse, man, it's... It's meaningful. It it's powerful, isn't it? And uh, yeah, yeah. My equivalent is saying, "Man, that's a really tough verse." And there's a <laughs> lot of debate about this. And um, if you're if you're not aware of the conversation on this verse, you probably shouldn't have an opinion. Hey, there you go. And then I go. I can just leave it leave it there. Exactly. Perfect. Or I just say that's outside of my field of study. Oh, I like that. That's a yeah. good one. That's a good one. Well, we are wrapping up the Minor Prophets, the end of the the Old Testament. Josh, you like the Old Testament, and I was thinking, it feels like reading the book of Revelation because mm-hmm. of all of the apocalyptic imagery. Yeah. Um, what is apocalyptic literature? What do we mean by that when we say this prophet is giving an apocalyptic vision right. for the people of Israel? Yeah, when we talk about apocalyptic, um, we're talking just simply the word revelation. I mean, you were kind of hinting, I mean... A- the book of Revelation isn't is apocalyptic. It's apocalypsis in the Greek, which just simply means revelation. And uh, revelational literature often has to do with just revealing reality as it is from the divine perspective, from the way God sees things. So when we're looking at these visions and all these crazy things we can't comprehend, uh, it's really kind of like an impressionistic painting. It's not meant to give us the details per se, uh, but it's trying to communicate the emotion and tone of reality uh, from the perspective of of God. And so I think you're supposed to grasp uh, that feeling and emotion that's being conveyed uh, through the words on the paper, of course, revealing to us how reality truly is from God's perspective. Yeah, so sometimes it could be predictive apocalyptic literature, but often it's really just more of a critique Mm -hmm. um, revealing the underlying realities of uh, what the experience is from God's perspective. Yep, from God's perspective for his people and from his own control over things, his sovereignty. Yeah, that's really helpful. And that shows up numerous times, sometimes more clearly than others. So for example, in the book of Nahum, mm. uh, there's this warning to Nineveh, not one that promises forgiveness at all. You know, even Jonah didn't promise forgiveness, right? I don't I don't, I don't think so, no. Not based on what we're told in Jonah. He, he just said... Mm. Judgment's coming, yep. and then people repented. Yep. Well, kind of the same thing happens to Nineveh again, you know, generations later in Nahum, um, and and God kind of calls out what this city and Assyria has done, you know, in his viewpoint. Mm-hmm. But then we move on from Nahum to Habakkuk, which is one of your favorite books. <laughs> Actually, it's really probably not a super well-known one. I was going to say, I don't, I don't know too much about it at all. 
Yeah, the verse, of course, that most people know from Habakkuk is the one quoted by Paul in Romans uh, 17, but the righteous one will live by his faith. Mm-hmm. Of course, Paul quotes that in Galatians as well. The author of Hebrews quotes it, and there are some slight variations each time. Um, I think in Hebrews, it's my righteous one will live by faith. Mm-hmm. So there are some mm-hmm. distinctions there. Um, but again, it's the Lord bringing them out, judgment and salvation for the glory of his name. An important verse in Habakkuk is 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the sea. Mm. But then we move on to Zephaniah. Is there anything notable about Zephaniah? Dude, your guess is as good as mine. (laughs) Yeah, it's another really unfamiliar book. Um, But again, this apocalyptic critique, both of Israel and the nations, with a promise of salvation, ultimately is the Lord um, acts in mercy and faithfulness. We move them to Haggai. Is that how you pronounce it? Or is it Haggai? I've heard it pronounced both ways. I think it's probably Haggai. Haggai. Yeah, that's how I say it, but I've heard it pronounced so many different ways. When you're listening to preachers try to preach that too, they'll pronounce it differently. Yeah, and this has a lot to do with the building of the temples. So you have to insert this back into the return from exile because you've got Zerubbabel, who's indicated here. Yep, and Um, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak. Yeah, and as I was reading that this morning, I was thinking, man, there's a little bit of an overlap here with Zechariah, which we'll come to in a second. Right. um, Because that guy's mentioned there as well. Yeah, so they're both in the exact same time period. Haggai, Haggai, how did you say it? Haggai. Haggai, yeah, that's how we're saying it. And Zechariah are both exact same time period, both the prophets to the people of Israel. And Haggai focused more or less on the temple rebuilding aspect. And so his book is encouraging the people to build that. There's a heavy emphasis there. And then Zechariah is more, um, it emphasizes the, the temple, of course, too, but is really about the people returning wholeheartedly back to God. Um, so, But they're contemporaries. They knew each other, spoke to each other, preached powerful messages together to the people of Israel in tandem. Uh, calling them to return to God fully, to do what he commanded them, building the temple, and return to him with their whole hearts. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, And of course, these books are arranged. However, they're arranged for reasons we don't know. Maybe it's by length. Mm -hmm. Um, But it it does kind of make sense to talk about God's temple Mm -hmm. first, and then um, the the return of his people. Because in, I forget which one of them it was. I think it was maybe... uh, Nahum? No, it was. I think it was Haggai, where God says, I'm going to bring judgment on you because you're living in nice homes, but the house of the Lord hasn't been built. Right, right. Um, so mm-hmm. the building of the temple, in part, indicates a return of the people to the Lord. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting, because um, in in my research, that whole, uh, that whole, they're building their own homes and not the temple, uh, they tried. They tried to rebuild the temple, but they were stopped by... Um, the ruler after, who was it? Not Cyrus, but his son Artaxerxes, I believe. Yeah, yep. And then after they got stopped from it, they're like, well, what do we do with all this stuff we got for the temple? I guess we'll build up our homes with it. And so they started doing that just because they couldn't. And then Haggai and Zechariah like, no, 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 it's time to build the temple, even though they said not to. We're going to do that. Yep. And God's going to take care of you. So it was a, a leap of faith for them to, to rebuild that project rather than focusing on their homes. Because, I mean, practically speaking, uh, government said you can't do it, and so they're like, "Well, we'll focus on our own, our home homes." Yeah, yeah. So Haggai one to the Lord of Armies says this: These people say the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be right. rebuilt. Right. Uh, but then the Lord 
speaks through Haggai and says, is it a time for you yourselves to live in paneled houses while mm-hmm. this house lies in ruin? Yeah. And he tells them to think carefully about their ways and to yep. build build the temple. Right, right. Now we get to the famous book, Zechariah. Oh, so famous. Um, it's at least famous around <laughs> resurrection because you've preached four sermons from it, <laughs> and you're planning to take us all the way through Zechariah. Yes, all 14 chapters. Um, does it surprise people when you tell them, yeah, I'm preaching through Zechariah? Um, I think so, because most people, like, that's really obscure. Um, I've never heard a sermon from it in my life, and if I have, it's been, like, on one verse or something like that. Yeah, great. Um, What piqued your interest in Zechariah, other than you're just a good Christian who wants Uh, to know all (laughs) of the Bible? Yeah, that's what it is, no. Um, Studying the the Gospel of Mark is what really piqued my interest in, in the book, as I was studying, um, especially uh, the Passion Week of Jesus, there were just numerous quotations and allusions to Zechariah, and I was confused because in my research, I want to know why uh, he's choosing Zechariah and what is it going on there that sheds light in the New Testament. Um, and it wasn't apparent at all. There were a lot of times that I would go to the book of Zechariah where he's quoting from, and I'm like, what in the world does this have to do with what Mark is trying to say here? Or why did Jesus mm-hmm. choose this analogy? And often I just was lost. I had no idea what was going on in Zechariah at all. And so you got the famous quotations like, you know, I will strike my shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And you go to Zechariah and you're like, what is going on here? I have no clue. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I, I paid 30 shekels of, of silver, you know, that again is Zechariah. And you're like, what's going on there? I, I have no idea. Yeah, and that one's particularly mm-hmm. interesting to me because there are the two staffs, mm-hmm. favor and right. something else that he breaks in half. Right. As he annuls his covenant with Israel. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I, I don't know how all of that relates because it's sometimes unclear who is the one paying the... 30 shekels. Right. You know, that's that's a question. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe you have the answer. Well, I mean, I can tell you for Zechariah. In Zechariah, it's it's um, they're paying the shepherd, which Zechariah is embodying, uh, what's word act type things? You know, yeah, speech act. Speech act yeah, things. Yeah. Uh, so he's pretending to be a good shepherd, and then they're like, okay, pay me my due, what you think I'm worth for taking care of you worthless sheep. Okay. And so then the sheep, being the people of Israel, pay him 30 shekels, and that's what they're told to give him. And he's like, well, I'm done with you now. This is all I've done. This is all I'm worth to you, only 30 after everything I've done for you, worthless yep. sheep. And so he's like, all right, that's it. I'm leaving you be. You'll be devoured by horrible shepherds, abused. And, I mean, you go to the New Testament then, that's what you see playing out with Jesus then, being paid 30 shekels, and then the Israel really being handed over to, I think, the Pharisees and mm-hmm. Sadducees and, and abusive shepherds that will eat their flock and not care for them. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm sure that there's a ton written on the relationship between those two texts yeah. and what it means for uh, the staff called favor to be cut into annulling the covenant God made with the peoples mm-hmm. and what that means for um the makeup of God's people. Oh, there's, it's debated. <laughs> yeah. So debated. <laughs> it's just one of those ones where you say, man, if you're not aware of the conversation on that, you probably shouldn't have an opinion. I, I, I'm aware, and I still don't have an opinion on it. Yeah, so. and then, of course, there are, like, going on into chapter 12, uh, the section of mourning for the pierced one, mm-hmm, where God mm-hmm. says he'll pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and residents of Jerusalem, and they'll right. mourn for, they'll look at me and, and uh, whom they pierced and mourn. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, as one weeps for a firstborn. Right. So 
you know, I'm like, man, is that like a Pentecost text? Right. You know, it kind of sounds like it to me. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Is it like a multi-layer text and Mm -hmm. Pentecost is the first thing? Because then you also kind of have some of that language that in Revelation referring to the ascension of Jesus where every eye will see and they'll mourn. Right. Um, Right. Yeah. what, What do you make of that? Um, just to back up here, chapters nine through fourteen of this book, man, are are so hard. If you try to, first of all, if you try to do nine through fourteen chronologically, you will be frustrated out of your mind. Like it doesn't make any sense, especially when you go to the New Testament authors. They are all over the place, and they like this was fulfilled here in Zechariah, and then this was fulfilled. And it's not in order at all if you're going chronologically by the life of Jesus. Okay. So when we come to this text here, I mean, I. I'm inclined to think that this is all very impressionistic, painting a picture of reality of what happened with Jesus's life. And I'm not sure if I know all the specific details, because again, on this passage alone that you're talking about, there are like 10 different opinions of what this could be referring to. Nice. And I, I have no clue. I'm not 10, 9 through 14, but that's the most complicated, okay. <laughs> complicated part of the book. So uh, I remember when we were reading Isaiah and Jeremiah, we kind of concluded that that those books were not a chronological order of their sermons, but mm-hmm. kind of an mm-hmm. anthology collection of sermons. Mm-hmm. Is that somewhat similar for Zechariah? At least 9 through 14, that is, seems to be absolutely true. Okay, yeah, great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, well, I know that you're going to keep preaching through Zechariah, mm-hmm. and we'll be able to hear your in-detailed thoughts on everything in the book. At least that's that you can fit into a sermon. Sure, sure. Um, is there anything notable that you would want people to have in mind as they approach Zechariah, perhaps reading it for the mm-hmm. first time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't be afraid of, I think sometimes we can be afraid of the apocalyptic visions, these crazy things that are happening. I would want people to know that you do not have to be afraid of that. And with the visions there, especially in chapters one through eight, Uh, where you're seeing these visions, just know that each vision normally has like one main idea or point that it's trying to communicate. And that's supposed to be encouraging to you. You don't have to be looking at this confused, but you can find encouragement that, wow, God's in control. He has his four horsemen across the earth that sees everything and he's sovereignly there. And take hold of the main points that are being driven out or like the staggering uh, 30-foot scroll or something like that, God's word, and it's devouring evildoers. Like, you don't have to be like, what is that about? Just God's word is going to bring justice on evil in the end. And you can find encouragement from these pictures. Uh, so don't be afraid of, mm-hmm. of these things, but look for the main point idea and don't overcomplicate it because I think sometimes we get so caught up in the weeds. I don't understand. When in reality, it's there. You got the main idea and you can find encouragement from it. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, when I was reading that text, I was just trying to imagine what it would look like for a 30 by 15 yeah. scroll with writing on each side, floating through the air, what right. that would look like. Yeah, massive. Yeah. But God's word's powerful, man, and that's what's trying to be communicated there. It's huge. It's over everything. Yeah. There's a lot of things like that. Have you ever watched the uh, short evangelistic film called The Gospel Blimp? I think, didn't you send that to I, me? Yeah, I don't know if you way. ever watched it. But. I think I started it, but it was so weird I turned it off. <laughs> <laughs> so the premise of this yeah. thing is that there's this church community group that is like, we need to share the gospel. And this church decides the way that they're going to do this is they're going to raise money to hire a blimp to like fly this sign with John 316 or something mm. all over the city or something. So they put a ton of effort into this. Right, right. Um, and 
eventually someone gets frustrated with it and they just like start talking to their neighbors, <laughs> which is like, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And they share the gospel, share the that, gospel way. that way. Yep. And the moral of this story is don't waste your time on a tone of big programs or whatever. Mm. But my connection to the floating scroll is I just imagine that it's like the big gospel blimp declaring God's wrath, <laughs> um, leaving a big shadow of fear in his wake. Yeah. Well, I think that, yeah, that and it's God's word will not fail. It's it's bigger than all the evil that you can see around you. And there will be justice. And that's especially encouraging for people who are experiencing great injustices mm-hmm. um, in the book of Zechariah. Yeah, yeah. So what do you make of in these minor prophets mm-hmm. where especially God's judgment on the nations is emphasized mm-hmm. and judgment on people who don't care for the widows, who don't care for the foreigners, mm-hmm. who, mm-hmm. you know, abuse the orphans? Yeah. Um, Sometimes talking about that seems a little harsh in the way that God frames it. Right. Is that just because most of us are not in the widow, orphan, oppressed person category that he's talking about? So we Mm -hmm. just don't, we don't feel that oppression. So then we don't quite um, relate to the judgment on the oppressor. Or why, why do those texts really get lost on us? Yeah, yeah. I think sometimes we're quick to associate uh, social justice for these, you know, disenfranchised groups with CRT or our politics of the day and age, and we're so disenchanted with that that, you know, we almost just go over it superficially without taking seriously what God's trying to say there because it's all colored in our minds. Um, I think that's one cultural baggage maybe we have trying to—because everything we're talking about today, very different than, I think, in many ways— than what the Jews were going through. Uh, so I think that's one possibility why it kind of goes over us. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, I just, I don't I don't know if we really take these texts seriously like we need to. Like, what does it mean to care for the poor? The world? Like, what does that look like in our day and age? That's the government doing it, right? I mean, welfare. Um, like, what does that look like for me, Josh Huber, a normal guy on a normal salary taking care of a poor? I think, and so we don't know what to do with it. Like, Mm-hmm. They seem like they're fine through the government, so how am I supposed to care for the widow, orphan, when there's so many government programs that we've kind of outsourced this to as the church? Um, so I, I don't know if we have answers, and so sure. we just kind of gloss over it, like whatever. Yeah, what, I, I don't know. what's a better yeah. term than social justice? Because I think you're right. It's, mm-hmm. it's a mm-hmm. fine term, and it's been used for a long time by mm-hmm. biblical scholars, because that is what it's talking about, these social situations mm-hmm. where there's injustice. Mm-hmm. And I think the relationship between the word justice and righteousness gets lost mm. because in, in Greek, you can see that D-I-K, you know, that dikaios, mm-hmm. righteousness, mm-hmm. justice, you see the relationship. Between the two. But in English, we don't have a close word pairing between justice and righteousness. Mm-hmm. You know, to to make righteous, though, we would say is the verb justify. Mm-hmm. So we do kind of have it if we puzzle it out. Mm-hmm. So it would be a better term than social <laughs> justice. I was trying to puzzle about this this morning. Social righteousness? I don't well, know. I was coming up with societal righteousness. <laughs> societal righteousness, Like yeah. righteous yeah. relationships yeah. within society mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. every level. Yeah. Because yeah. When That's we, what we're talking Yeah, because sometimes I'll hear people say, yeah, I believe in justice, but in the biblical understanding of that Whatever, when they're yeah. when they're like disagreeing with however someone on the news used used the term social justice mm-hmm. and i always wonder what do people mean by the biblical justice mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because sometimes i think people mean 
um, I don't actually agree with anything, and I don't want to think about it. Mm-hmm. And I think and that's this the is a quick. Like, I think that's the majority. Yeah, this is a hide from it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was trying to think. Okay, what what is our responsibility? Because the prophets over and over again mm-hmm. condemn Israel for a lack of justice. That's right. that's the word, mm-hmm. especially in regard to foreigners, orphans, and widows. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking maybe societal justice at every social level, mm-hmm. or societal righteousness relating rightly to one another right. in covenant faithfulness before God. Right. Yeah, I mean, if we're trying to contextualize what does that mean for us today, I mean, that's something I've been trying to think about too. Like, who are the orphans and the widows in our day and age, and how do we rightly relate to them in a way that, I mean, this text is kind of calling us to do. Um, and it's hard, but I know at a minimum it means investing in those people, giving them time, talking with them, meeting their true needs. Mm -hmm. And that involves me at least inviting them over to my house, talking with them. Um, If that means discipling, having a one-on-one relationship with a childless, you know, a child who has no father, doing that at a minimum too, and having our whole church group around them and be that person's family, Mm -hmm. uh, the ones who have been disadvantaged in many ways. And we have them. It's just that we're not often looking for it because like, oh, the government's got them covered. Yeah. Yeah, and I think maybe people in those categories aren't necessarily looking to churches to right. help them. Right. I think, unfortunately, um, scammers are looking for oh, churches yeah. to help them. Yeah. But maybe because scammers um, have maybe turned churches cynical. away from, yeah, mm-hmm. kind of turned them toward a cynical attitude, mm-hmm. then people who are actually in need right. aren't finding help. So that's kind of a tough challenge, right. too, that right. requires discernment. Mm-hmm. And getting to know people genuinely. I mean, that's where you got to start. Yeah, and obviously the New Testament churches had to deal with this, which is why Paul had to give some clarification about who actually counts as a widow. Right, um, right. Not busybodies and, and all that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, how to relate to people who are or aren't working. Mm. But almost all of that is within the context of people who are I connected to that assembly somehow, mm-hmm. not just randos yeah. out on the street. People within the church. Um, so whenever people come and ask us for money, I try to tell them, hey, we want to help people, especially as they're connected with us. Mm-hmm. And then they almost always leave. Yep. Um, so I don't know what to do about that. That's something to keep puzzling about. Right, right. Well, we turn our attention to Malachi, the final book of the Christian ordering of the Old Testament. And uh, fun fact here. The sermon preached at my wedding was from Malachi. What what text? Uh, uh, what verses? It was Malachi 2, 10 through 16. Oh. The, yeah, 10 through 16 or 10 through 17. Judah's marital unfaithfulness. Yeah. Oh. <clears throat> so Tell us about it. Yeah, the, the whole thing is um, there are these people who are praying before the Lord you know, they're weeping before him, offering sacrifices, and they're saying things like, why doesn't God listen to us? Why is God against us? We've been faithful to him, um, you know, and then he responds pretty much saying, um, you're like doing all the right things, but you're also doing all the wrong things at the same time. And God lists all the bad things that they're doing throughout this book. And another one that they do in verse 13 of chapter 2 is that they cover the Lord's altars with tears, with weeping and groaning, but he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. And when they want to know why, in verse 14, he says, um, because the Lord was the witness between you and the wife of your youth, and you've acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Um, then God make the two one, 
and give them a portion of spirit or of his spirit, maybe. Um, and what is God seeking? Godly offspring. Um, so watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. Wow. So that's kind of the text. Mm. Um, pursuing covenant faithfulness before God and with one another. Yeah, I mean, that adds some gravity to uh, your marriage vows right there. Yeah, it was a very uh, solemn <laughs> worship service. I bet. So, I was there. You were, yeah. yeah. And no one was smiling. It was it was very sincere it was and joyous. grave. It was, so it, was it was joyous at the end, but the charge was a little bit uh, solemn. Hard-hitting, man. Yeah. And if, am I right to remember that you requested this text? I did. Oh, that's I did. That's Along great. with a few select Bonhoeffer quotes. Nice, nice. Yeah, so I think the end of the book, though, is what a lot of us pay attention to, especially around Christmas time. So in Malachi 4, uh, God says that he's going to pretty much destroy everything, Mm -hmm. not leaving root or branches. You know, nothing's going to grow up here. But for the people who fear his name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Mm. Isn't there a Christmas carol we sing? Hail the Son of Righteousness. Yeah, and then risen with healing in his wings. Yeah. Isn't that? What song is that? Isn't that Hark the Herald? Yeah, that's it. We yeah. just sing that on uh, Sunday. Yeah. That's it. So that this is where those words come from, mm-hmm. and that's very fitting right. because it ends with this promise of that God would send the prophet Elijah. To turn um, the hearts. Be, yeah, to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and hearts of children to their fathers. And that, of course, is what we considered in the Gospel of Luke over mm. the last four weeks. Love it. So what about that last part? Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Yeah. And I think this is what happens. <laughs> yeah. I think that's exactly what happens. But but who becomes the curse for us? Yeah. I think Jesus. Jesus so, so John showed them the way of salvation. Mm-hmm. Jesus, of course, did as well. Mm-hmm. And it Rejected. didn't happen. Right. Yeah. Um, so then Jesus became a curse for us mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. for the iniquity the one, of us all. Yeah, the curse it is the one who hangs on the tree. Yeah, yeah, some mm-hmm. classic Galatians there, which, mm-hmm. you know, as Brian Blazowski was reminding me recently, mm-hmm. you know, this was his dissertation work. Um, if Jesus bore the curse of the law, mm-hmm. are Gentiles under the law? You know, because when we read those texts, we say, you know, Christ bore the curse for us, the curse of the law mm-hmm. he bore on my behalf. Mm-hmm. but are Gentiles, most of us, under the Mosaic Covenant law. That was his dissertation project. He didn't give me an answer. I think he wants me to buy his $75 <laughs> published <laughs> dissertation. Based on the way his church operates, uh, wouldn't he say no? I guess I don't know how he's... I have to go top him. I would never want to put words in his yeah. mouth. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, but when we read Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because as it was written, curses everyone who is hung on the tree. Um, does that include Gentiles? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Verse 14 says, The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus. What passage are you on again? Galatians 3. Galatians 3, got it. Not in our Bible reading. Isn't there in Isaiah the same thing? Or is that just... Well, that's the Deuteronomy quote. Oh, Deuteronomy, Okay. Yeah, Isaiah, he bore the iniquities of us all. Okay, got it. Yeah. Interesting. Well, we've wrapped up the Old Testament. We just have a little bit of revelation to talk about.
Yeah, I think we talked through chapter 14, 15, maybe a little bit in the last one. Mm-hmm. I definitely talked about the way that I saw the seals, trumpets, and bowls relating. It's just telling the same thing from a different vantage point. Right. Did you use that movie? I did. Yeah. I referenced vantage, vantage point. Vantage point, yep. Um, and I was glad to, you were gone on on Christmas Day. I was. But in my Christmas reflection, I said that I was going to talk about my favorite birth narrative, Christmas story. Um from the Apostle John in Revelation 12, where the woman, you know, right, with clothed in celestial light, with the moon under her feet, gives birth, and the dragon tries to seal it away. I think that's the best Christmas narrative in the Bible. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, so then I just think probably in the same way that the seals, trumpets, and bowls are like just showing everything from Christ's birth or ascension to his return— it just restarts again in chapter 17 in a different way. And here it goes all the way um, till we get to chapter 19, um, return, mm-hmm. 20, 21, new creation, new Jerusalem. Um, yeah. So we could probably spend a ton of time looking through every detail in here. I don't think I'm going to do that. I, yeah. Um, any, yeah, what do you want to talk about? I was going to say, did you talk a lot about the symbolism of what certain things mean, like Babylon and all that fun stuff? You know, I think I referenced that Babylon is a stand-in for all evil, all evil, yeah. all pagan systems opposed to God right. and his kingdom. And that's true of Zechariah, too. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I can't wait to hear you talk about the relationship between Zechariah and Revelation when you get into certain sections. Dude, there's, there's a lot of overlap of symbols, but I'm yep. not sure they're communicating the same point. No. And I, I think that's just something you have to be careful of because there's a ton of overlap between the four horses there and Revelation. I mean, you got the golden lampstands. Yep. Um, yeah, and the four horses seem to be radically different in purpose. Yeah, absolutely. One bringing destruction, mm-hmm. one bringing God's yep. provision of safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. Absolutely. The four uh, uh, craftsmen or whatever you call them, but there's, is that in Revelation? Actually, I have to double check that one, but anyway. I don't think so. Yeah, maybe Maybe there's not. a reference to it. But, yeah. Um, yeah, when you read Revelation, especially the end, what do you find especially encouraging? Uh, the end of Revelation? Yeah, especially chapters 20 and 21. <laughs> um, I find particularly helpful just the fact that Everything that's evil and all the curse is being undone completely. So Satan being thrown down, crushed by Jesus, and, of course, death being crushed to death, and, of course, Jesus winning in the end with the new heavens and the new earth uh, coming into being with Christ and everything being restored. And especially the the verses that talk about the tears being wiped away, 21-4, and death being no more, grief, crying, pain, all these things passing away and everything being made new. And so just seeing uh, God uh, take away all that went wrong and making it right. Um, there's just something so beautiful about that. It's what our, all of our hearts long for. We want all of the pains we've gone through, sufferings to uh, be done away with and for everything to be made new. Um, and that'll happen ultimately with Jesus um, at the end here uh, with the coming of the Lamb. Yeah, and I think as you you know, you want to focus on what is really clear because there are some things that seem contradictory. You know, so for example, in chapter twenty one, it might seem like uh in this New Jerusalem there's a temple that's gonna be in there 
and it's a literal city in a you know exactly what was in the second temple but restored renewed uh, but then, of course, in chapter 21, verse 22, John says, uh-huh. I did not see a temple in it uh, because the Lord and the Lamb are the temple, mm-hmm. right? And, um, you know, this city of Jerusalem is like a bride adorned for her husband. So probably a picture of the people of God dwelling on earth mm-hmm. according to God's intentions, these sorts of things. Um, and if we can grab onto what is clear, mm-hmm. it can be a lot more encouraging and less divisive and confusing. Yep, Absolutely. Well, there's more we could say about that, but I want to just take this opportunity to recommend a book to help people who are wanting to read and understand Revelation in the way that we've kind of been talking about it. It's a little book called The Heart of Revelation, Understanding the Ten Essential Themes of the Bible's Final Book by J. Scott Duvall. So if you're familiar with the Grasping God's Word Biblical Interpretation book, he's one of the authors for that, Duvall and Hayes. Another book, God's Relational Presence, that's pretty good. Um, so he, he identifies 10 themes. Can you guess what they are? Uh, I wouldn't even begin because I might miss all 10. (laughs) God, the almighty worship. You are worthy. The people of God is called chosen and faithful followers. The Holy spirit, the seven spirits before his throne, our enemies, the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. You can see he's giving a little quote after each thing. Mm. Um, the mission my two witnesses, Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain, judgment, how long, sovereign Lord, the new creation, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and perseverance to the one who is victorious. Sounds good. Well, we, I'd read it. Well, you should. Um, <laughs> it's not that long. Can you guess how many pages it is? 192. Close. Oh, 226, 226 with the index included. Yeah. But uh, Revelation a helpful but sometimes confusing book. Now, Josh, how should you uh, interact with someone who interprets the book of Revelation different than you do? Um, You should probably fight with them uh, to the bloody end and uh, have a duel, pistol duel preferably. Okay. And uh, whoever wins that duel is obviously right and the other's dead. I like it. It's kind of like casting lots with a little bit of violence added. Mm -hmm. Right. No, you probably should uh, deal in a more peaceful manner with them and I think there are main points of the text that I don't care what viewpoint you're holding on Revelation that you can agree on and hold to, even if you think it's more literal in nature versus figurative. Um, I think there are a lot of main points that you can find and appreciate um, as far as the truth that's being conveyed there. And I don't think you have to have 100% agreement to to both appreciate the truths there. I think there's a lot more we can agree on than disagree we just happen to often focus on where we disagree and then want to fight to the bitter end about it. Yeah, I think that's right. And obviously there are some really wonky interpretations that uh, well, we yeah, should all yeah. say, uh, er, that's yeah. bad. Mm-hmm. But there's probably a range of interpretation that we could say, okay, there's good, um, long evidence and history of Christians interpreting the book in this way. Mm-hmm. And when it comes down to it, there's probably a lot of overlap. So there are certain features that we could all celebrate together. Like we all agree, Jesus will return. He'll establish his kingdom forever. Um, even though some people might say, well, kind of forever and then forever, you know, like we, but there's still that shared theme. So I think with some people we disagree with, we could say, okay, what are we actually disagreeing about? Mm-hmm. And probably our agreements are greater than our disagreements mm-hmm. when we're interpreting and then when you look at the broader scheme of Christianity or of the human population, we're actually 
very, very close in what we believe. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to get too upset. Right. Well, we thank everyone for going on this wonderful journey through the Bible this year with us. If you made it, um, I'd say congratulations, but then you wouldn't get any crowns in heaven. Just kidding. We don't get crowns in heaven for reading through the Bible. At least I don't think so. Um, (laughs) I mean, if we do, I better get going on that a little bit more often. But uh, it's been a good journey through. It's been informative and helpful. AJ, Matthew, and I are going to do one final recap episode next week where we talk about our experience in a little bit more depth. Uh, But we would encourage you to keep reading the Bible, even if you don't read through it in an entire year. Um, But we'll end with this final verse from Revelation 22, 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with everyone. Amen. This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church in Burnsville, Minnesota. You can learn more at resurrectionmn.org. We hope that you have a very happy new year.